Hello everyone and welcome again to So Very Wrong About Games. I'm your co-host, a man whose greatest sense of accomplishment came from making a kid cry back in preschool. Joining me as always is Mike Walker, a man whose contributions to the field of particle physics remain criminally overlooked. How you doing, Walker? I'm doing great, and I'll always remember that day, Mark. <laughs> so, as always, we're going to be talking about the games we played over the course of the past week. We're going to be talking about our feature game, which is Hansa Teutonica, an oldie but a goodie. At least an oldie by the standards of the cult of the new. We're going to be talking about news and why it doesn't matter, and we're going to be talking about our main topic today thereafter, which is theme. I'm going to be talking primarily about what makes a game thematic. Walker's going to be talking a little bit more about whether or not theme is integral to a design and to its design success, whether the player needs it in order to grasp on, things like that. Walker's going to be very diegetic in his approach. It's going to work out great. You're going to love it, I promise. Anyway, with that in mind, games we played. Walker, what did you play last week? Last week, I played Castles of Burgundy. For the first time. I know, oh. this, I know this has been a staple in people's collections, but I had never played it. I played the card game, the Castle Burden card game, but I've yet to play the board game. And it was a good game. Where do you stand on Stefan Feld games, generally? What Have you played any of his other, other designs? I'm sure I have. I'm not, I know a lot of people are into designer, and they look at the designer, and they know their games. I, I very infrequently look at the designer's name. Sure. Well, I'm thinking about things like uh, In the Year of the Dragon. We're talking about things like Notre Dame, Trajan, Aquasphere, Castles of Burgundy. No, all those. I have not played any of his games. Okay. Well, he's infamous for a sort of the approach that's called point salad. For me, it always feels like point mongering because I feel like every move I make will get me two to three points. I, it gave me the it gave me the feeling that Lisboa did, and why I didn't like Lisboa, and why. I like Burgundy, but the same sort of feeling where it's handcuffing you constantly, where it's like you try to do something and you can't because you have to have all this other stuff done, so you're constantly being handcuffed. Unlike something like Feast for Odin, where, you know, you get to do anything you want and you're never limited on what you want to do, except by, of course, you know, how many workers you have, but you can work around that. It's not something you have to wait, okay, well, this turn, i got to do this, this, and this, and get ready for another turn or anything. You're always just pushing, pushing forward ahead, so... That was Castles in Burgundy. All right. Uh, well, last week, for the first time, I played The Expanse, which uh, came out this year uh, by Jeffrey Engelstein, published by WizKids. I was very much looking forward to it because I find that uh, Jeffrey Engelstein designs are always at least interesting. He always does some interesting stuff. I'm a huge fan of his prior work on Space Cadet's Dice Duel, specifically the Dice Duel version. And I also really quite liked the Ares Project, which I believe was his first public design. And I've reviewed some of his work in the past, and I, I usually find it interesting. I was I was extremely disappointed by The Expanse, I'll tell you. And I'm going to be talking a little bit about the theming of The Expanse later on in our main topic. But basically, I was looking at this uh, relatively confrontational area majority game, and about halfway through it dawned on me, this is just El Grande, but worse. It has a sort of card selection mechanism whereby you pay points to, to, to get cards later on in the queue. And that's kind of what you're doing in El Grande as well, you know, 20 years ago. It was it was a bizarre sensation to, ha to you know, have the scales fall from my eye. I'm not going to say that they're the, they're the exact same games. Uh, but it, it just, it felt strangely unsatisfying in a lot of ways. It was just, well, I put a cube here, I remove this cube over here, whatever. And if I'm going to do that, if I'm going to play a game where basically it's just about putting out the cube so you get the, the, the scoring mechanisms right. You know, the the king is still the king, and El Grande did it better. And uh, so I didn't really feel the need to return to the Expanse. Maybe I will, maybe I won't, but uh, it didn't really grab me. So it feels like just cashing in on the IP, or... I'm not, there... I'm not sure. Uh, I, I, did, I don't know if the IP is prominent enough to, to, to be really cash-inable, as it were. But I, I'll say that I just found it bizarrely uncompelling... Uh, and when a game is uncompelling like that, it really needs to live or die by, by its mechanisms, and the mechanisms were solid, but uh, unspectacular. Some people have compared this to Twilight Struggle, insofar as there's a, a, an event versus ops trade-off. When you take a card, you either get some number of points to do operations, or you do the event. But when the events are all... Well, all. When the events are all overwhelmingly, desperately boring... And they just tend to be mild variations on what you would do with points anyway. It's like, well, for a point, you can move a fleet. But this event says you can move two fleets. It's like, okay, fine. It, I, I didn't find it interesting. In Twilight Struggle, the events are interesting and compelling. And it's unsurprising because that sort of card-driven approach was pioneered in war games. And the card-driven war games where the events suck don't get played. It's the card-driven war games where the events are interesting and compelling that really see repeat play. And 
if the Expanse were a card-driven war game, which it's not, I wouldn't play it again. And it's an area majority game where the events are uninspired, so also I probably won't play it again. Gotcha. My next game is uh, another party game. Since I've been the social butterfly and going out to all these different groups, I need to expand my my war game collection to include these types of party games. <laughs> it's called Diffusion 7, or the Nasty 7. And it's just a really interesting, not interesting, but a really fun People, I've never seen anyone that not like not like this game. In this game, everyone there's a cadence to the table. You count up to seven and then back down to one, and that cadence never changes, right? And everyone flips up their top card, and it's either they're going to say their number or they're going to say the number for the next person. I.e., that person will have to skip their turn, and it's just a game of mistakes. If you make a mistake, then you have to grab all the cards in the middle, and so if you take too long to take your turn or you take your turn when you're not supposed to or you say the wrong number then you're taking the cards and whoever is out of cards first is the winner and it's a great game and everyone seems to laugh when they play it so i like it that's the nasty seven yeah i thought it was cute and fun it's kind of like uh jungle speed with with talking and if you say the wrong thing then you get the cards uh, it's also, unlike, well, it's unlike Jungle Speed in that there's less violence. Uh, Jungle Speed tends to end in, in broken limbs and, and bruise, bruises all over. But yeah, it, it's it's cute and fun, and, and it's a great way to have a strangely tense yet strangely satisfying 15 minutes of just being silly, which is good for a party game. Exactly. I'm glad you've been having success with it. Uh, last week, we also we played this together. We played uh, Tribune Primus Inter Paris, which is another sort of oldie uh, Euro game. I've been uh, getting it back to the table again, in part because I'm going to be talking about it with uh, Joe Salen and the members of the Longview podcast in January. Uh, Tribune is my actually my favorite, all-time favorite worker placement game, and I could talk about Tribune for an hour, which is a good thing, because I'll be expected to in a couple of weeks. But it's uh, always tense, always enjoyable, always quick, uh, lots of player interaction, if you haven't given it a shot, I highly recommend it. I've played Tribune, I think, almost 50 times by now. Uh, I I didn't really get a good sense of what your experience of it, though, was. So This would be the only second time I played it, and I don't mind it. It's the it's teaching it to people is a little rough. I think the getting to know the all the different scoring, you know, there's, uh, what, 10 different ways you can... Uh, end the game. You have to get three of these ten and exactly how to get all of these. There seems to be an over amount of components and they, they're they all named either, you know, like uh, Scroll or Liberium or Tribune or... <laughs> and you need this combination. Unless you have this combination, you have to have this party and to get new players into it is, I think, is might be a little a roadblock for it. But other than that, I think it's a great game. Well, I mean, if certainly if they're as uh, hydrocephalic as you are, then, then sure, that might be a challenge. But, uh... My next game is I'm going to go on about Descent and Imperial Salt again, only because the Imperial Salt app came out this week. We luckily were just finishing our Descent app campaign, so it all worked out great. We got together, we said, okay, well, we're going to play now, and we looked on the app store, and off we went. So we got well into the Imperial Salt app. I really like it. It's got, uh, changes the rules up a bit for the app from Descent, makes it a little bit more clear what to do, and it's Star Wars, and whether or not you like the IP or not, uh, I think they did a great job. I found it incredibly boring. Dull, 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 but... <laughs> it, it is, I think... It I, is dull? What? I, I can only agree with it being dull, but I think for, to get people in, I think it's... No, 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 sorry, sorry, I'm not gonna let you keep going. Back up a bit. You, you find it dull? I know why I find it dull, but you you and the other people around the table seemed, well, some of them, seemed to be much more engaged. What, what do you mean? What? Well, it's the game mechanics. I don't think the game mechanics are there. I think it's if the role-playing sort of story... We can go into theme a bit later, but yeah. I think I think if you stop the game and start telling stories about what's going on, if you start making up, okay, you know, this happened. Well, this happened because, you know, well, he tried to do this and he tried to do that... And you, and you actually stop the game and go on about stories about what's going on. I think that's the difference. This that never happens in 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 Castles of Burgundy, Feast Road, and these other games. You don't stop. It's like oh, he went wailing because you know his family or or whatever. I think if it has that in depth role playing aspect, I think this is what why we enjoy this particular game. But okay. I really feel the game mechanics aren't there, and I I'm, I think I'm on. I don't know if you're going to go to this page, but the same page where they keep going back to the same characters. Like, let's bring Darth Vader in again. Let's always have to have Luke Skywalker. Let's always have to have these main characters all the time. 
I don't particularly like that, but I can see why they do it. A lot of people want that. They want Star Wars. This is why they bought the game. They bought the game because they want Star Wars. This is what they want in the game. If they don't have it, they complain. That's the main complaint. Not for me. That they want they want to be able to play these main characters. Why can't we play Luke Skywalker? I want to swing my lightsaber. It's like, well, because that's been done. We, I don't want to play that person. I want to make my own story. Well, but, we'll, we'll definitely pick up on that thread later. But I will merely point out that when we're playing Gloomhaven, we still tell these stories. You know, a card effect happens, and the card simply says, well, you launch an attack of this value, and then something weird happens. Either we get a whole bunch of rolling modifiers, or uh, a bizarre modif- uh, uh, some sort of weird effect happens, or we miss, or whatever. And we still tell these funny little stories about what has occurred over the, over the the on top of the game mechanics. The salient difference being that Gloomhaven is actually a good game. I will say this. When playing the Imperial Assault, uh, so the Legends of the Alliance... Uh, app. I only did it the one time. I did wish that I was playing the skirmish mode, because I do find the skirmish mode in Imperial Assault to be surprisingly reasonable, you know, for a quick kind of, I'm going to get my guys and bash them against your guys kind of experience. But we'll we'll, we'll talk a little bit more about all this stuff when we uh, start talking about theme. Uh, so I don't I, I don't want to preempt your, your comments, but there I have a number of, of thoughts specifically with the thematic integration of Imperial Assault specifically in the uh, app as well. Anyhow, uh, the last game that I want to talk about in terms of what we played last week is Project Elite. We've been playing this for a couple weeks, actually, now. And it's a real-time co-op game. It's a game that I really enjoy, but I can't really review because most of the time I'm able to at least try to say something about why I approach the game in a certain way or the kinds of experiences I'm I'm having. And usually I leave it to other people to say, I like this game because it's fun. And I have to admit, and this reveals something about myself, I think, all that I can say about Project Elite is I just find it really fun. I just it, it's, it's just fun to be chucking the dice. I can say a little bit about why the design is successful, and that's that it's as a real-time game, the stuff that you're doing in real-time is all bone-simple. Even new players, you're like, okay, once this timer starts, here's all that you do, and they're like, all right, fine. All the rules explanations, all the details, all the grit... You know, a boss shows up and does something weird, or a special monster shows up, or an event shows up. All of that you can discuss during the paused element. So everybody gets to be on the same page, which is not true even of relatively simple real-time games, like Escape, Curse of the Temple. I, I've, I've played that a few times, but even in the middle of the game, I'm like, wait, what am I doing again? I don't understand how this works. And this wasn't a str- strategy question or a question about choices. I just couldn't remember how the rules worked. And it's a relatively simple game. And I think that's one thing that the designers of Project Elite did right. They knew that once the real-time starts, everything has to be really pared down. And you can introduce all the complexity later on during the moments of pause. So I think they caught the tempo exactly right. Shame that the Kickstarter was a rolling disaster. Maybe it'll be reprinted, maybe it won't. Uh, It's super out of print and hard to find. But if you like real-time co-op games, or if you just like chucking dice to kill a whole bunch of incredibly ugly aliens, then give Project Elite a try. That's my recommendation. Yeah, I can only agree. It's like one of those games where it's like your guilty pleasure, right? They say, what do you play today? You sort of look at your feet. Mm, Project (laughs) Elite. (laughs) It's great. It is very enjoyable. Got anything else, Walker? Uh, Might as well talk about the last one. It was King Domino. Played it again for probably like the fifth time. And I think that's about all you need to play it. I'm not saying there's anything wrong with the game. And I think it, it, it's mechanics are great and it did what it needed to do. It, it, it uh, gave people a lot of fun right off the hop. Easy, super easy to teach. Very minimalistic components, and uh, and as a testament to this, where we I pulled the game out, there was no rules. Parts of the game were missing, and we were still able to play because because <laughs> we learned afterward they had part of it out for a Christmas display, but we still easily got it played without. That's how easy it is to play. Nice. All right, so let's talk about our feature game. And uh, our feature game is Hansa Teutonica, published in 2009, designed by Andrea Stedding, and it uh, it's put out in the U.S. anyway by Z-Man. It was reprint- reprinted recently. It was out of print for about uh, for for a while and hard to get, but they did a reprinting with a couple of strange component changes. But no need to dwell on that. And the the first thing that I want to ask you, actually, Walker, about this game is. I don't think it's necessarily very important to classify games in terms of a primary mechanism or say, you know, this is an area majority game or this is an area control game or this is a worker placement game or this is a resource management game. But 
I always, I've usually found that when I play a game or talk about a game, I can classify it in some way. Other than being a Euro game and being able to talk about it in detail, do you think you're able to classify what kind of game well, Hansa Tatanka is? Putting me on the spot and giving the three seconds to think about it, I've come up, <laughs> I've come up with uh, action management game. Sure. Yeah, uh, no, and I agree. Having spent slightly more than three seconds, I, I think that... So, in three seconds, you got to where I got uh, in, in much more time, which is usually my experience of uh, our, our rates of thinking. Uh, yeah, it's... You've, you've got, like, an action allotment of the number of things you can do. But the thing is, as far as classifications go, that tells you next to nothing. No. Because it doesn't tell you what you do with those actions. It doesn't tell you what you're trying to do with those actions, etc., etc. It covers all manner of things. It's even less informative than worker placement. And let's be honest, worker placement is not particularly evocative no. or, or descriptive of what you're doing with those workers. Not anymore, anyway. It's got a little area majority. It's got a little bit of root connection, but it's not a root connecting game. Uh, it's... it. It's an action point allotment game, and that's that's about all that I can say in terms of the, its, its broad categorization, which is one of the reasons why I find it fascinating. Because Euros, one of the problems with Euros is they're often just so desperately samey, which sometimes is an advantage because then you get to iter iteratively improve on a formula and make it better and, and, and make everything a little bit tighter or a little more interesting or, or, or things like that. Uh, but in terms of the Euros that I've played, the only other Euro that I have this much difficulty classifying is actually a, a, another game that I that I love called Tower of Babel, designed by Reiner Knizia. People ask me, well, what kind of game is it? And I'm like, I can't really say. It's got some area majority scoring, but there's this weird cooperation thing. Anyway, so let's talk about uh, Hansa Tanaka. What, what, what do you... Because we both love the game, right, Yes, Walker? I know that's what I was going to say as a caveat. It's yeah. not really fair that we... Yeah, this is... Truth be told, right at this moment, it is my number one game. For sure. Really? Oh, I didn't oh, yeah. know you liked it that much. Oh, for sure. If I had to choose any game to play every time right now, it is Hansa Tatanka. It's been like that for about a year now. Because mm. I was, I introduced it to you, right? Oh, for sure. Yeah, and I remember you being very, very enthusiastic. And I, and I love the game, and I'll play it at any given opportunity. I didn't know it was your favorite. Yeah. Wow. So what is it you like so much about Hansa Tatanka? Well, just that there's no real randomness to it. There's no dice. The components are super minimalistic. Set up, you put the board out, and you're pretty well ready to go. You don't have to, you know, shuffle cards, put things out on the board. Or, sorry, you do. You need to three put small three yeah, yeah. chits out on the board, but that's done, and you're off to the races. If you have four players that know what they're doing, or how many of your players, apparently it's not very good with two. Yeah. I'm going to be touching that on that later, I'm not sure, but three to four, you're off to the races, and it's great. Yeah, it's a quick game. Uh, if people know what they're doing, you can get it done. I've seen games uh, finish in as much as 30 minutes, uh, in as little as 30 minutes, rather. But the uh, one of the things that I'd like to emphasize right at the, right at the start as to why I like it is despite the fact that it's your stereotypical dry Euro game in a lot of ways, and there is no theme in here at all. It's laughable. There's, I think there's a name for the difference between cubes and discs. I just call them cubes and discs. I think it's traders and merchants, I think. Anyway, for a game I played this much, I, I have no conception of what the things are actually called. There's your available supply and your unavailable supply, which I think is the difference between your supply and stock, but I just say good supply and bad supply. And the game doesn't suffer for it. No. <laughs> because there's no bloody theme to this. Something, something... Uh, uh, Renaissance German bank. Ugh, who cares? Exactly. And... Offices. Something put put chits on the board. Yes, and normally, not not all the time, but normally in games like that, it's just you're sitting in a corner, pumping your engine, and it's just a question of who pumps it better. Not in Hansa Teutonica. Hansa Teutonica is an incredibly confrontational game in a lot of ways. It's about blocking. It's about knowing when to be blocked. It's about getting in people's way. There's also lots of grabbing things before someone else can. And in this game, that can be extremely painful if you miscalculate and let somebody else grab something that you needed. Then you're going to have to adapt. Uh, but this is not, in a way, like another, my my, my all-time favorite game is Tigers and Euphrates. And that's one of the things that I adore about Tigers and Euphrates because it's a very confrontational Euro game. And But also like Tigers and Euphrates, when you're kicked out of where you were, even if you wanted to be there, typically there's a way to adapt. You need to be flexible. You need to accommodate the changing board position. Uh, and Hansu Tatanik is actually genius about that because, again, sometimes you want to be kicked out. Yeah, it rewards you. That's the really cool part about it. It's actually even a strategy that you can use is to make people kick you out and you get an advantage to that. I was going to bring up that point as well. That's I'm wondering why that's why we like those two games so much. It's very much controlling the game and, and, 
and manipulating your opponents to do what you want them to do type thing. It's like, I'm going to do this. That's going to force their hand like chess, like Tigers and Euphrates, and this is going to, and then I'll be ready for my next turn because they have no choice but to do that type thing. Absolutely, and that is a common thread amongst a lot of the games that I personally like, the ability to plan ahead, but the requirement to be adaptive and to change and adapt to the to, to the board position and the board state. And it's usually in those heavily confrontational Euros where you can do that because there's you have enough information to be able to predict the state of the game, but there's enough interaction with the other players that they can really disrupt that game state, and then you have to be put on your back foot and decide what to do about it. And Hansa Teutonica does this brilliantly, possibly better than any other Euro of its type, definitely better than any Euro uh, with this low level of randomness, I think. That's right. The other thing I want to quick uh, quick note on here, when I didn't want to go past it, was there's been a problem with rulebook apparently from the other stuff I've read that it's a terrible rulebook. I didn't see a problem with it. The good part is that it's so I don't want to say basic, but you don't you don't ever have once you know the game, you don't need to go back to the rulebook. Absolutely. Like, even if it's like a year after you've played, you can pull this game out and you'll know it right off the hop. As, as soon as you've played it once, then you'll never have to re- reference the rule book again, except to know how many chips are in your good supply and how many chips will be in your bad supply at the beginning of the game. Other than that, you're off to the races. Yeah, and I think that leads to another thing I wanted to talk about. It's It's got this weird mixture, not uncommon in games of this type, of accessible and inaccessible. The rule set is so light that you can explain the rules to somebody in a very short amount of time, and even new players have no difficulty remembering almost all of the details right away. Very few rules questions that pop up. They understand, and you can even watch, and I I love doing this, you can even watch new players get those aha moments. The first time they see someone capitalize off a block. The first time they see that their block isn't going to work because someone else is going to outmaneuver them. The first time they see the effectiveness of a less beloved track being maximized. Things like that. Uh, even just, you know, a few turns into the game, you see them recognize what's going on and then start employing those strategies. It's a beautiful thing to see. That having been said, because it is a deterministic no-luck game, if you've played five to ten times and you're playing against newbies, you're going to win. There's almost no no two ways about it. I can only agree with that. That's just like a a side thing we want to bring up. When teaching games that you are very good at, just games in general... Is is this something that you should do? Should you let people not? I shouldn't say win. Should you be easy on them? Because you want to bring these games to the table every time. You want. Sometimes people have limited time, so the time they've set aside for gaming, they're there to have fun, and you sort of want to facilitate that. You want to make sure everyone's having fun. But here's a game that is punishing if you're not sure what you're doing. You want to win, but you're going to fleece them. <laughs> if it's their first game, yes. So, it, so what? So how? How do you? Uh, how do you? What do you do to, you know, bring these players up to speed? Well, it's worth noting that exclusively uh, here we do play Hansa Teutonica for money. Uh, this is how I was able to buy my first car uh, through being a Hansa Teutonica shark, and I can talk a lot about uh, techniques to appear to be losing and then win at the last minute. It's it's very lucrative, but. To me, actually, it's less about two things. First of all, I will say that Hansa Teutonica does give you slightly more opportunities, uh, despite how confrontational it is. It's not quite like other battle games. If I'm playing a miniatures game, for example, a tabletop miniatures game, and I'm destroying you, typically there's almost nothing that can be done about it, or you're destroying me. There's nothing I can do about it. My guys are all going to die, and I just get fewer and fewer actions, and I'm just surrounded and overwhelmed, and I'm ground into the dirt. One of the benefits of Hansa Teutonica is, even though it's not multiplayer solitaire, and it's always going to be very interactive and confrontational, usually people who are losing are not hemmed in in quite the same way. I'm not going to say that it's equally rewarding to play while you're losing as it is when you're winning, but it's not as if all your avenues are going to be cut off. You can still do the thing. If somebody's running away with the game, if someone's claiming all these routes, you can still block them. You can still get in their way and try to capitalize on their their even kind of just drifting off them, to, to use a racing analogy. That's that's the first thing that comes to mind. Do you agree with that? Or For sure. No, you, it's definitely reading the table. And sometimes mm. it, when people get down and they realize that they're losing, sometimes they just shut off, right? And they're, yes. just, they're just going through the actions for the sake of getting the game over. 
and I really try to bring them back in and show them, you know, I don't want to say what they should have done or what I'm just more like what they can do and how, how that person did what they did to get so many points and how they can also do the same type of thing. Right. And in, back in. and in Hansa Teutonica, because of how accessible the rules are and because of how early and quick the, some of those aha moments go, I find that people don't even need those nudges. I've, I've found sometimes midway through a game, someone's like, oh, wow, I've really lost this. I like I, Someone else is running away with it. But I know why they did it and I know how it worked and I know what I can do even now in here to maximize my board position, even though I'm not going to do it. Right. And those are the people that typically come back for a second player ready, locked and loaded and ready for bear. That's right. Again, immediately, it's like, can we, you know, like, so are we playing again or like can we set up can we start again <laughs> yeah but just just as a, a, a to talk about you know the obligation of the game explainer or the people who are very experienced in the game i actually put it precisely in those terms of obligation this is a bigger topic that that maybe we should talk about some other time but i think there is actually a a moral obligation to play to the best of your abilities because if you don't, if, you, if you're not taking a game seriously, if you're making moves that deliberately harm you or that randomly throw the game to somebody else, or if you're not fully engaged with it, deliberately, if you're distracted or whatever, that's fine. But if you aren't, if you're not engaged with the game in a, in a reasonably competitive way, I think you're actually violating the social expectation of everyone at the table. And some games cease to function in those contexts. And... I think that if you no longer are behaving reasonably predictably, i.e. maximizing your own self-interest, then that throws off everyone else's ability to play reasonably as well. And so I agree that it's all about fun. But I think that there are certain social expectations that engender moral responsibilities to the players at the table. Uh, but that's, as I say, that's a huge topic. For uh, sure. So I, I, think, I think if you're teaching a game and you know that you're really good maybe pursue alternate strategies you're not as accustomed to rather than say looking at a move and saying oh that's obviously the thing i should do and then deliberately doing something else that at that point when you make that choice then i think you've done something actually wrong but as i say more on that perhaps in a different topic all right so we all we done so far is croon about this game what <laughs> we have a, i have a negative list do you have a negative list all right i'll go over i my, don't actually really i'll go over my negative points sure. and you can tell me why they're not negative points sure Right, well, we just talked about the one, teaching new players is always a detriment. I really feel that the chits on the table, I could do without them, totally. Like, if they bring the, take the chits out, I don't know, something about them just rubs me the wrong way. It's I, such a, you know, streamlined game, and then you throw these chits in it, it seems to throw it off a little bit, and it's another, uh, there's some hidden points at the end, it's just yet another weird triangle amplifier of points at the end. Uh, zero theme. Oh, yeah. Uh, and, sure. And getting it to the table because of the zero theme and the way it... I, I like the way it looks. I like the art. I like the color palette. But some people don't. And getting people to play it when they see this cover and what it is also makes it a very hard sell to get it to the table. Yeah, a number of people made that observation about the chits. I, I agree that there's probably a version of the game that would work without them. And I will say, in the game, after you claim a chit at the end of your turn, you're supposed to put out a new one. I forget to do that all the time. And maybe that just demonstrates that they're kind of superfluous and not as integrated with the rest of everything else. So that's, that is an excellent point. As far as the appearance of the game, I think that really is... Uh, group dependent. I remember once a long time ago, this was back when I was first getting into gaming and I was uh, playing gaming with uh, my friends in Montreal. And I was, I, I, I had taught a couple of games to this, this kid. He was about 13, 14 years old. Uh, his name was Jules back in Montreal. I called him Jules César as a joke. And I just taught him uh, Winky, which was the, the forerunner to uh, Small World. This is back uh, the, the, the earlier version and Tigers and Euphrates. And, that he had been before that he had been fed a steady diet of you know the latest fantasy flight game which even at the time they were still churning out a whole bunch of heavily thematic and well at least what they consider heavily thematic more on that later stuff i use the term stuff advisedly and he came away after playing winky and uh, tigers and Freddy's. he was raving about both the games and he said plus c'est plus c'est bon which is the uglier the game is the better it is and I don't have that association necessarily, but I will say some people, they take one look at a box cover and they just refuse to engage with it. That's right. You guys, uh, lately, it, it seems like any cover that GMT Games has 
one look and you're done. I don't think we should go into the GMT <laughs> cover situation. I think, actually, I had some thoughts on it the other day. They got a group of people together and they decided we need to pick the worst color palette and decide on the worst possible art so people won't play our games. And they all looked around the board and they all agreed. They all nodded, yes, that is a fantastic idea. Worst color palette. Maybe. Most terrible art ever. That will definitely get people to play our games. That is obviously what happened. Maybe ultimately what happened was they got together and it's like an emperor's new clothes situation. They said, what we need to do is make sure that our box covers drive away the Philistines with tiny, puny minds that won't be able to appreciate the greatness they're in. And it'll just be like an automatic lamoid detector where you show them the cover of Triumph and Tragedy or of Combat Commander or of uh, Commands and Colors Napoleonics or Manoj or... Uh, well, Churchill's a bad game, but, uh, or, and they, you know, people will see it and be like, oh no, this is far too interesting for my narrow intellect to appreciate. Well, if that's what they're going for, congratulations. <laughs> <laughs> yes, but going back to Hansa Teutonica, it's very much of a style that you don't see much anymore, which is the stern European man on the cover, uh, which used to be every other game. Yeah, Trading Mediterranean. Ding, 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 ding. Exactly, exactly, yes. And that does lead into the utter themelessness. But when a game is completely and utterly themeless, all that's left to fall back on is its core mechanics. And do they work? Do they sing? Do the core mechanics fit together naturally enough that you don't need any kind of narrative or conceptual schema layered on top of it to make them make sense? So you're bleeding into the topic now, sir. I know, it's called a segue. It's what us <laughs> professional broadcasters do. Uh, but anyway, before we uh, before we, we we get fully into that, is there anything else you want to to comment on Hansa Teutonica? Uh, there is not, except you really need to try it. It's it's a great game. It's an absolutely wonderful game. And the other thing is, if you're jaded on Euro games, if you've ever enjoyed Euro games, it really does feel very different from a lot of other Euro games. I'm not going to say everything about it is unique, but again, it, it's hard to pigeonhole. It's hard to classify. It's highly confrontational. Without feeling mean, it's you know it's 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 a lot of the great things about Euro games. Exactly, I I try to in my reviews I always have a segment at the end where I compare it to other games and I literally I can't compare it to no other game. The closest I got is uh, Scythe, right, where you have your player board in front of you and you're moving chits around in order to improve your action selection. Sure. Yeah, but it, it's even more confrontational it than is. Scythe. It though. totally is. That's what I mean. Like <laughs> that's what I mean. Like the closest game I could come to. Like, what other game could you compare Hansa Teutonica to? No, I agree. Right? Superficially, it looks like things like Turn and Taxis and, and, and even Ticket to Ride, but it is it is not like those games no. at all. Yeah. Give it a shot. I don't think you'll be disappointed. So, before we, we, we then square the circle and, and finish our discussion about theme, let's talk a little bit about news. Uh, you got any news in the industry that you want to talk I, about? I've Walker? got a whole bunch of news. See this big blank spot on this sheet where news is? I do, I so do. I'm going to totally steal news. Apparently, Renegade has a pre-order up for Altaplano. <laughs> <laughs> Look, I don't think we should turn this into a, a, a hype corner. Uh, just because you're super excited about multicolored llamas, uh, that doesn't mean that we should necessarily... <laughs> It's not only because I love Orleans and bag builders, but I think Altaplano is going to be... I've watched... I don't usually watch the rules explanation or how the game goes, but I've, I've watched a little bit, and I think it's going to be a very interesting game. Right, and it well, has llamas. Like, how can you go wrong with we'll llamas? Ta we'll talk about it when it comes out. Uh, there is one bit of news that I would like to try to hype up a little bit. I'm not in any way in, uh, compensated for this, but this is the Board Game Geek end of your membership drive. If you're even remotely... Like geeks like us, you probably make use of this database on the reg. I definitely check it every day because I'm I'm just that popular and exciting. Uh, but you know, if you use the if you use it, come on, do the right thing. We live in a participatory democracy with our with our dollars. I use Wikipedia all the time, so of course I give them money. At that point, it isn't even charity, right? You should be willing to pay for the services that you use all the time. So if you use Board Game Geek, give them some money. They don't ask for much. And but look. Uh, best of all, if you pledge now, they give you a whack of geek gold and you can just turn off ads for the rest of the year. So anyway, that's my pitch. As I say, I'm not affiliated with BoardGameGeek, but I think it's important to support what you love. Turn off ads? How are you going to find out about the newest and greatest Kickstarter if you turn off ads? Yeah, sure. Actually, I can't say, truthfully though, I cannot say how many I found because of the BoardGameGeek ads, but there is at least one or two 
Kickstarters that I've funded because the ad came up or knew that it started on Kickstarter. Sure, but the ad, came up on the ad. The ad block function is very, very uh, configurable. You can turn off some kinds of ads and not others. And if you want to keep the banner ads that talk about Kickstarter projects, you can do that cool. and turn off some other stuff. I I turn them all off, but cool. whatever. Uh, news that really doesn't matter. Apparently, Simon is going to be putting out a whole bunch of Munchkin games, which doesn't make any sense to me. But apparently, that's going to be a thing. I, I that I don't understand. I, I didn't know that Steve Jackson still designed games that weren't you know the next iteration of Munchkin. But apparently, he's going to like, be designing some games it's for like, them. Let's sprint forward and then cut our hamstrings. Like, yeah, like seriously. Like, I, I I don't I, get it. I don't get it. I don't think we're the target audience. Uh, no, I don't. The same. Well, I, I even so I'm not haven't heard what's going on with it, or even if it's out. But Eric Lang producing a Munchkin card game. CCG. Yeah, that that that's been that's been in the works for a while. Uh, but again, I look if, as far as I'm concerned, the shine is off Eric Lang. Some of his games are great. A lot of them aren't. Uh, he's 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 a great designer, but he's not. I hear a lot of people talking about him like he's the second coming, and I, I'm sure he's a great guy. No offense, but he's designed a lot of games uh, uh, for me where I played it, and it's like, eh, not so good. So he's just like other top-tier designers, which is a strange sort of thing to say. Uh, but, you know, Munchkin CCG, that's two strikes for me. So. Yeah, I know, and then Rising Sun, we'll see how that how that's accepted. Yeah, we'll see. Uh, other news, this is very sad. I mean, it looks, and uh, Board Game Geek has been covering this. Uh, it looks like Mayfair doesn't may not really exist anymore as a publisher. They've let off a whole bunch of staff. It looks like all they've got left is Lookout Games. So Hanno Gierka and, and, and the, the people who work there. Uh, it, it appears that all the non-Lookout people at Mayfair are basically gone? It's... Yeah, I looked at, I looked, I read that briefly. I didn't know enough about to bring it up, though. But yeah, that would be unfortunate. Not that they've done anything great in the last Lookout has, but that Mayfair yeah. hasn't brought anything out that well look Mayfair were the people who first brought up, who first brought Catan to North America they're the people who first brought Tigers and Euphrates to North America way back in the day there were precisely two game companies more or less that, that, that were putting out high quality hobbyist games Rio Grande and Mayfair Mayfair is all but dead Rio Grande exists almost exclusively to produce Dominion and Race for the Galaxy stuff uh, which you know is fine but, you know, as, as somebody who remembers back in the day before Osmo Day bought up everybody, it, it makes me a little bit sad to see that, that Mayfair may be no more. That's but true. It, it is what it is. Maybe they just made their big money on selling the Catan off and they said, okay, we've done enough. It's, it's possible. To... Sure. Maybe. All right. So that's it for news. So let's uh, pick the, th- the thread back up about what makes a game thematic. Let's talk a little bit about theme. So what is it? Let me ask you this question, Walker. I don't mean to put you on the spot, but what is it about a very thematic game that you really appreciate? What 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 is it that adds to the experience for you? Oh, I guess we've already talked about it. Like if the game actually stops and you go off as a group on this crazy story about why things happen, or if you if you put if you have invested interest, I guess that's what it is. You have you have an invested story. You're mm. developing a game as you go along. Maybe that's maybe that's what good theme is yeah i'm inclined to agree uh because uh maybe maybe i shouldn't start off with my epic complaint but what anyway this is half my show so i'll complain if i want to to my mind what a lot of gamers identify as theme and certainly what a lot of publishers identify as theme uh to me don't really contribute that to the game at all because much of the time and again this is mostly fantasy flight but not exclusively theme is interpreted as lots of lots of artwork and lots of flavor text just throw lots of writing at the wall and a narrative will emerge and to me the narratives that i remember or the narratives that i enjoy are very much like what you're talking about when you can tell a story about what transpired in the game and when the game is bending over backwards and throwing all this usually badly written flavor text at me to explain what's going on that to me drowns out my ability to put in my own narrative about what's going on. It drowns out my ability to, to cast the events of the game based on my own agency. It, it's, it's taking the reins and it's just crowding out all the available space. And that was definitely part of what I didn't enjoy about the Imperial Assault app, the, the Legends of the Rebellion experience. It was telling us this relatively pedestrian story about a relatively stock setup that we've seen a billion times before, sprinkle it with a couple a couple proper nouns of uh, Star Wars races that we then had to look up because we didn't know what they were, and so someone had to say, this is what this 
alien race looks like. And as a result, the game was 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 spinning all this bad narrative. There was no room for me to really feel invested in what was going on. So all that we were left with was, well, I move four spaces and roll these dice to attack, and I you move these three spaces and roll these dice to attack. And at that point, if the game mechanics can't live up to holding the entire experience, all you're left with is a bunch of bad writing on the face on on the screen of uh, a tablet. True, and sometimes companies take it to even further where they try to force the same theme so hard that it, it wrecks the game. You know what I mean? It's like we're going to throw this rule in because it's very thematic, right? And it yep. totally takes away from the game experience. Yeah, in war games, this is this is known as the difference between design for effect and design for cause. Uh, you design for effect when you're making something because you want to shape the game experience to be in a certain way, and you design for cause because, well, that's how things actually work or worked, and so we think that we have to be simulationists to this extent. And both of these, I would say, can be thematic. I think some of the problem is, and this is this is true of wargamers, it's true of other people, they think that unless you're designing for cause, uh, it's not it's not theme. I disagree entirely, because if you are able to design a game, if you're able to do the design for effect work, if you're able to design a game where you have this emergent sense of uh, of, the, of the theme permeating into the gameplay, then I think things really sing. For example, I think that there's some games that really evoke a feel because of the tightness of the uh, game design. Uh, so a number, a number of examples here. Uh, claustrophobia is one of the most thematic games I've ever played. And it does this not because it has a little paragraph of flavor text at the beginning of a scenario. I skip those 99 times out of 100. It's because the game design is very tightly done. It gives you an... uh, uh, There's asymmetry in the design. So there's humans versus demons, and they both have very, very different sets of abilities. But nonetheless, it's all very simple and accessible in terms of the mechanics. But the mechanics let you tell the story. That's right. They spill into each other, and they all work together. They mesh, and they all make sense. That's the thing. Having the mechanics make sense. Absolutely. It all sort of feeds into each other. It's like, all this obviously happened because of that. And... And a lot of the games, when they're so thematic that you figure out how the game works because of the flow, right? It's like, this happened, this happened, and I said, oh, I wonder if this is going to happen next. And sure enough, it does. It all, like, works together. That's when you know that the theme works and is a fantastic experience. Yeah, the uh, this is not to say that writing doesn't play any role in it. I'd just like to give a shout out to one of the, I think, the best written games, well, a game with the the best writing I've seen in a long time, and that's this year's Spirit Island. And in Spirit Island, there are all these powers where just the title of the power alone is so evocative and so wonderful and and communicates this universe of what's going on. Uh, Some of my favorites are, uh, there's a power called Death Falls Gently from Open Blossoms. And that's beautiful. You get to think about what you're doing and about these, uh, well, it's a game about killing... Uh, settlers, That's you know, right. the, these these colonizers who show up on your island and you don't want them there and it's about driving them out. And you think about how as nature spirits, you're using the land against them and you start imagining what it's like for these people as you terrify them because these flowers are poisoning them literally. Uh, there's another one called The Trees and Stones Speak of War and it's about the land teaching the natives how to fight back. And you, again, just that structure alone that setup i don't need to know about the story of you know tim the settler looked down at the stone as it like blah, blah, blah. no 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 let me do that exactly yeah for sure yeah we don't need to be we don't need our hands held and brought us through the world you know we like to do you know we can do it ourselves just give us the tools and we'll bring ourselves through it absolutely yeah. which which leads to another gripe that i have about something that happened when we were playing the imperial assault app when you try to craft the narrative to that level of detail, every jarring element will really pull you out of the experience. We had an encounter where there was a mercenary goon, and the app randomly decides what kind of monster it is, and the, 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 the mercenary goon was a feral cat, and it had a trained feral cat with it. Just because it, 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 it pulled the random thing from the monster table, and the mercenary goon turned out to be an animal, which makes no sense... Uh, you have similar things with a lot of Cthulhu games, where it's like, oh, Cthulhu games have to be very thematic, so that means necessarily there has to be lots of combat and lots of items and stuff. And you end up in these situations where your investigator is stabbing Cthulhu in the face with a knife. And, like, you know, stuff that really doesn't make any sense and is not evocative of much of anything. You're just loading in all these details, but theme isn't about detail. Theme often is about knowing when to leave the details out. 
as far as I'm concerned. And I think, again, games like Spirit Island, games like Claustrophobia, even games like uh, like Space Alert, which is about selling a feeling of panic and of overwhelming odds and of chaos, that is able to get a lot more traction to me than pages and pages of writing, of, co- of, of, of badly copy-edited writing about, you know, the horrors of, of, of dealing with the mythos or, or whatever. Because if I want to do that, if I want something with that level of, of granularity in storytelling, I will play a role-playing game where you are able to craft that shared story to that level of detail, and the mechanics can really take a backseat. I've just, I have yet to experience a really, really compelling narrative experience with, uh, in a, in a board game or card game context. I don't know. Have you like a really compelling narrative experience in, in the context of a, of a board game that we're talking about when, when it's about, Oh, for sure. I've Android, the board game. Have you played that? I haven't. If you want a theme, a game that's soaking in theme, that is the one you want to play. Okay. For sure. It brings you into this world. Uh, it's like totally load, uh, Blade Runner style, you're like hacking stuff, you can play, you know, uh, six different characters and they all have totally different storylines you can run through and there's multiple trees to these storylines and it's, it really is, it's, unfortunately it's a bear to get to the table, like there's so much there that is almost impossible, it sits on the shelf unfortunately, the people have come up with multiple rule sets for it and it is really a great game, the end game is terrible. Okay. The getting to the end game is fantastic. What's what's pro- what's the problem with the end game? Well, the end, the, well, the game is you're just putting these chits on on the villains, and then you flip them all up, and whoever has the most bad chits is the actual villain, and it it, it is as painful as it sounds. I see. It's like you have a whole pool of people that could be this. They're all suspects, and then you're all putting these guilty or innocent chits on them, and you're trying to prove that your particular criminal is the bad guy. Yeah, I, I heard about that. That does sound like, and it also sounds grotesquely athematic. They could have done, they could have told a story about you know corrupt cops trying to frame somebody, and that would have worked exactly. But yeah, it's a, sh- a shame it falls apart at the end. For for me, the most narrative game that I've ever played, uh, or at least the most thematically the, the the most thematically evocative game I've ever played, because again, I I haven't really had a compelling narrative experience in a board game. Uh, time stories, eh, not really. All the app-driven stuff, not really. Uh, certainly none of the, the Cthulhu board games, not really. That's why I like Cthulhu Wars. It doesn't try. It doesn't bother trying. It's like, hey, you like Night Gaunts? Play around with some Night Gaunts. We're not gonna. We're not gonna bother with any of this story crap. Uh, what the so the most uh, thematically evocative game I ever played was Aliens, which is uh, it was a 1989 design published by Leading Edge Games. Games terrible components, absolutely terrible paper map. Um, I've played this. Oh, you have? I have. I got to play it once, and I, I, it is all good experiences that I can remember. Yeah. That is, that's when we are going through the tunnel, and you bring Newt through the tunnel. And yep. You, yep. yep. Well, right. that's one of the scenarios anyway, yeah. Yep. Badly perforated chits. Yes. No flavor text anywhere. Uh, really simple rule set. Really, really, really stripped down simple rule set. But again, it's it's the asymmetry. It's the, it's the fact that with the same simple set of rules, the aliens are going to be swarming you. And it really brings out the feeling that you have, those feelings of tension, of, of excitement, of the, the Aliens movie. And uh, to a certain extent, it's uh, very much like Space Hulk. I was about to bring up the same thing. That was one of my notes I have is Space Hulk. is yep. a game that, very basic rule set, but the theme is so rich there that it, it's, it makes the game that much better. Absolutely. And, it's, it's, and to be clear, there's two senses here, just to sort of reiterate my, my point, there's two different ways in which you can understand a game to be thematic. There's thematic in the sense of revealing details are redolent in the lore of the Adeptus Astartes. I don't even know what those are, but I know that's a thing in the Games Workshop universe of Terminators and Gene Stealers and all of those stuff. No, that I, that I, I, I don't care about, first of all. But even if I did, I don't really get that from Space Hulk. What I get from Space Hulk is tension, excitement of the feeling of being overwhelmed, the feeling of being outgunned in the context of, this, of the Gene Stealers, uh, the, this notion of having to be bold, knowing when to strike, and all of this, again, through a very, very simple rule set, because the, the, the game knows that it can survive on the strength of its rules, and it knows that its rules are evocative of a certain kind of player experience. It's about managing that player experience uh, that, for me, is are the most th- thematic, th- thematically successful games. 
And so Aliens is definitely the most successful uh, license because it really feels like the movie. It doesn't feel like the movie if I'm reading a paragraph about, you know, what's going on in Corporal Hicks's mind or whatever. That's right. No, I totally agree. How about games that don't need theme at all? Or how important is theme to a game? Does a, does a game need theme to be good or to succeed in the marketplace? Yeah, well, it looks like in order for a game to be very successful, it certainly does. Because if you look at the amount of money that is generated by something like the X-Wing Miniatures game, it just dwarfs everything else. And so it would certainly seem that in terms of the overall market forces, uh, to make bank, you really need a recognizable theme. It's the same, it's the same uh, process that's happening in movies, right? It's all uh, prequels and sequels and redos and adaptations and everything, and original IPs can't really get very far. Uh, but in terms of, of a successful gameplay experience, obviously we both agree that theme isn't uh, a requirement. It depends on the game, I, w- I would say. Uh, so there's Hansa Teutonica, which doesn't even bother much with its pretense. But then I actually have a list of games here that some people might consider thematic, but I, I don't at all, but they're successful anyway. Uh, some, a couple of them are Vlada Kavadal's games, uh, Mage Knight and Galaxy Trucker. I don't really feel that those are very thematic at all. Galaxy Trucker's got some funny writing in the rulebook, but whatever. Uh, but at the end of the day, especially something like Mage Knight, you're... You're, you're 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 basically building and pumping an engine, more or less. Yes, I've never felt as though I'm out on this quest or the story. I've never had that feeling from Mage Knight. I love Mage Knight, yep. one of my top games for sure, yeah. but I've never had this adventuring feel from Mage Knight. It was, like you said, more of building your deck up, seeing the new cards, revealing new stuff, but never a... Uh, never a hero going through the land and, and aiding the people type feel for sure. Yeah, and so it's all it's all just window dressing. I don't know I don't know if it needs the window it probably needs the window dressing to some extent. But it's certainly not its thematic coherence is not such that you then remember how things work. Like wounds, for example. Wounds are still tricky, even though I, I understand how wounds often work in, in, in games or other games. It's not so thematically used in Mage Knight that I'm like, oh yeah, wounds are easy to explain. It's like, no, it's just another subsystem that you have to internalize in terms of the rules by itself. And, you know, that's fine. Uh, It's just the art and the theme is mostly forgettable. I'm just looking at attack points and defense points at the end of the day. And I'm okay with that. I think it's fine. Uh, Another game like that for me, uh, other games like that for me are are Cosmic Encounter. Uh, I love Cosmic Encounter. I know I get a lot of flack for that, but uh, anybody who doesn't like Cosmic Encounter is wrong and should just uh, uninstall and kill themselves. And, you know, there's lots of art everywhere, but I don't, I don't feel like I'm engaging in diplomatic relations with another race or anything. I'm just, you know, bashing them upside the head with my ships. Uh, Comet's the same way. There's a lot of stuff going on in Comet, but it's mostly about the numbers for me. Like, everything else is window dressing. Um, so, you know, I, I don't think it's it's necessary even for... The big, even Ameritrashy games, if if your mechanics are solid enough, you can carry the game. But they should try to get sales, do you think? Probably. I think, I think there's two big games that that I want to talk about in this context is Catan mm. and Dominion. I really don't think either of those two games try to sell their theme at all. Sure. Yet have still done very well. That's true. No, that's a good point, and I think, well, to a certain extent, uh, the I would wager they they get uh, Catan, especially a lot of the sales are still driven by Europe. The, the SDJ also never hurts, you know that drives a lot of sales, yeah. and uh, you know the the, the Spiel des Jahres. So there's lots of there's lots of games that we haven't talked about here, like you know that are that are pretty aggressively themeless, like uh, I don't know Celtis, uh, which is aggressively themeless. And still moved a lot of unit, units because Knizia finally got his SDJ for that one. Um, yeah, no, I, I guess I'm being a little bit too cynical. You're right. Catan is is not... I don't know anybody that plays Catan as, a, as an experience-based game. Uh, that's certainly how it's presented whenever Catan comes out in a sitcom. But th- I've never seen anyone do that in real life. No. Dominion is so themeless that it even makes fun of itself on all of its game descriptions. Exactly. That actually, by the way, is some of my favorite board game writing. The the, the, the flavor text on Dominion is amazing. The flavor text on the back, uh, the back of Dominion box. I love it when... I love that self-deprecating humor where they know what they're doing. They know that this is a themeless exercise in deck building, so they're just going to make fun of themselves while they do it. I, I adore that. So you're right. I guess maybe... I mean, I would have I would have cynically assumed that in order to drive sales, you absolutely need some sort of theme. But I guess, I guess that's not true. 
Those are good points. And then I, the other one I did, games with no theme whatsoever. I had to go all the way down to 67 is Crokino on the mm. BGG list. Before you get games like, uh, I was thinking like Skipbo. I couldn't even say chess or go or, or we talked about checkers earlier. You could say checkers is a completely devoted theme, but like I said, games that have no theme whatsoever. I couldn't think of hardly any like modern day uh, games that are popular that are completely devoid of theme. Yeah, it's, well, it's it's certainly very niche. The Gip Project, for example, Devon and Tamsk and Yinch and all the, all those other those are utterly and completely devoid of theme, one hundred percent. But that I think it's mostly because the completely themeless games tend to be abstracts, which in turn tend to be two player games. And so that's a very, very, very small niche of, you know, the two-player, no-luck, perfect information, abstract games. Yeah, because you even get into games like Codenames and Mastermind, where they are identical to what you just explained. Yeah. Yet they still tack on a theme of some kind in order to, I believe, promote sales. Sure. And that's fine. Look, we, we no, like... I'm not saying it's bad yet, for sure. I'm not yeah. saying it's bad or good. I'm just saying that it's it's an odd an odd thing. And, and just to be perfectly upfront. I don't, well, at least I try. I'm, I'm sure I'm a snob in any number of ways, but I try not to look down my nose at something just because it's got lots of nice art attached to it. Like I think uh, a lot of the theming in Ethnos, which is a recent game that both of us quite enjoy, is kind of ridiculously absurd and pasted on. But, you know, they're pretty... I, I, I like the, the art of John Howe, who did the, the art on the uh, on the cards, and the pretty pictures are nice. I, there's no thematic connection to me between, you know... Uh, the centaur power and what the centaurs do in the game or the uh, maybe the wing folk maybe kind of but you know minotaurs and dwarves none of it makes any sense to me but they're still reasonably attractive pictures on the card so hey that's fine uh sometimes uh if you really really devote the effort into it it can give you a, a slight sense of a broader universe going on one of my favorite games is blue moon and each race is drawn by a different artist and that helps give a distinctiveness to each different character race and maybe that does sometimes bleed over into the actual play experience where you get a better sense of the differentiation of the different faction powers because they're so unique and distinct so i definitely appreciate it when there's good graphic design and lots of effort has been done into that window dressing but sometimes it's window dressing and sometimes that's fine there is one exception though and there's one kind of game that increasingly I, I'm less and less uh, tolerant of, and I, I I think I know why, and that's Civ games. I still like Through the Ages, uh, but every time I play it, there's something that bothers me a little bit more. This is true of the Civ game Nations. This is true of the, Civ, the Sid Meier Civ game as well. I don't know about the newest one, the New Dawn. I haven't tried it yet. But Civ games almost invariably in the board game context end up with some situation like Julius Caesar leading a tank brigade that is supported by, you know, Maxim guns with spearmen off in the flank. And I'm sitting here and I'm like, wait a minute, what? <laughs> this, this is not only is it ahistorical, it's grotesquely on its face absurd. It is so laughably, manifestly absurd. Uh, there's a game that I love called Duel of Ages, and Duel of Ages is about giving Genghis Khan a chainsaw while he's riding a hoverboard or something. And that's okay, because that's what so, it's doing. It leans into it. You, say, you said Duel of Ages? Yeah. I thought we were going to talk about board games that are fun. No? Okay, sorry, go ahead. I, I didn't mean to interrupt. Moving on. And so... When 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 Civ games put on these historical trappings, it's almost always leads to utter ridiculousness. I don't know. Is that just me? No, no, no. I can only agree that it, sometimes game mechanics leads into things that are silly. And it just and for me, it pulls me out of the experience to a certain extent, and it just emphasizes that what we're doing is a coldly mechanical affair, which is fine. Hansa Tanaka is a coldly mechanical affair, and it works great. There's also a little bit of an exception, and I think there are some games who are very, 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 very successful at evoking their theme, but nobody cares. And those are often economic games. Like Modern Art, for example, is about art speculation as an art dealer and about managing money, and it's an auction game. And it works perfectly, but nobody cares. Like, that's not, that's not a compelling theme. So the fact that you, that you evoke it perfectly is largely irrelevant. Unfortunately, yes, especially in that game. Or the Gallerist as well, right? You, where you're pushing stuff around in a huge, you know, all over the place, tons of components, and sometimes you just don't feel the theme because you're overwhelmed with what's going on to, yeah. even, to even understand what what they tried to do. Yeah. 
I think also that uh, we should spend a little bit of time just to close this out talking about licenses specifically. Because we've been talking about theme generally, but licenses specifically, I think, are kind of a double-edged sword. Because to a certain extent, there's this ready-made audience. You know, people are ready and and eager to either relive or evoke the experiences that they liked so much in other pieces of media. But I very often find it to be a straitjacket. And uh, it doesn't help that a lot of the licenses are things that I don't really find lend themselves well to board games. Star Wars is the obvious example. When I think of Star Wars, and maybe this is just me, the way that I, that I appreciated Star Wars. When I think of Star Wars, I think of the hero's journey. I think of adventure. I think of a, a, a little bit of humor, a little bit of romance. And board games don't do that. Board games, Star Wars board games do fights. That's what they do, overwhelmingly. And sure, there was lots of fighting in the game. But it's kind of like... Uh, the, it's kind of like the lightsaber duels. The lightsaber duels in the Star Wars movies were always to establish a point about characterization and, and mood, not so much about fight choreography. Sorry, I'm talking about the actual Star Wars movies, not the prequels. Yes. Prequels are an exception, right? They didn't understand that, and that's one of the reasons why they suck. But licenses, very often, uh, when they just seek to recreate exactly all these same touchstones over and over and over and over and over again, can sometimes be tiresome. And let me just pick on Imperial Assault once again. I happen to note, that uh, the probe droids in Imperial Assault, what they do is they basically become kamikaze units because they go and they self-destruct. Why do they do this? Well, because a probe droid shot up for literally five seconds in the Star Wars trilogy, and that's because in Empire Strikes Back, when they shot at a probe droid, it happened to self-destruct. And there were reasons for that probe droid to self-destruct in that way. Like, in the context, it was a spy, blah, 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 whatever. They don't want the, the, the tech to be stolen. And the way that it, it gets implemented in a board game is in the most simplistic, straightforward, and dare I say, dumb way possible. It's like, well, it blew up in the movie, so clearly what it does as a combat unit is it goes into the middle of a bunch of units and blows itself up to do damage, right? 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 No, that's... Uh, it, I, I looked at that card and I felt a little bit disgusted. Yeah, it, like I said, sometimes it's to their detriment, right? And they're, like you said, their hands are tied. And either you're going to do service to the IP or you're always going to find people that feel as though you've done a terrible job. And on... I was just going to say, Game of Thrones is very much the same way, where they have all these IPs... Yeah. Where the writer writes exactly like you, like how you talk about Star Wars. He talks about, you know, there's this huge upcoming battle and you're about, you think you're about ready to read how this, you know, this huge confrontation is going to take place and how all this is going to happen. And then suddenly he switched to another character and they're talking about how this just happened. And, you know what I mean? It's like you're hearing about what you thought you were about to listen to this epic huge battle but you're hearing it third third hand right about oh we heard that there was this battle over here and this and this happened so you don't so you get to envision yourself what happened right yeah and then i think that's why these books have done so well yeah and it's it's again talking about specific licenses that have seen a lot of themed board game implementations in game of thrones there are not too many battles in those books. There are battles and they're significant. But when I think about the, you know all the all the all the campaigns and all the fights, there's only a small handful. But if you play most of the the Game of Thrones adaptations, there are tons and tons and tons of fights because they all want to be a game like Kemet, where you know they all want to be a dudes on a map game because they figure, oh well, you know, there's a map. Everyone there is a map of Westeros and they had armies, so clearly let's have them fight all the damn time. Well, no, it was you know the Game of Thrones books. I'm not a massive fan. I, I enjoy them, and I, I'm going to be reading the the next one when and if it comes out, uh, if ever. But to me, it's more about specific characters and about their motivations and about uh, all the sort of global geopolitics is is tends to be often a backdrop for a lot of the storylines. But no, board games can't do that. Board games have to have, you know, that one moment when Tyrion was leading a military unit over and over and over again because that's the only thing they know how to do. Yeah. And so I, a little bit to, uh, again, what we said at the very beginning, the more detail they seek to put in, the more they drown out the ability to have player, uh, to have players have compelling experiences of their own. To make up their own story. Yeah. Yeah. It's, and it's, it's a bit of a shame because so often a lot of the high value art assets or a lot of the big promotional pushes or a lot of the, the, the big industry focus is on these licensed adapted things rather than trying to be a little bit more experimental and letting letting these other things where maybe games where the theme is a, uh, is 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 just 
uh, a backdrop, but I wouldn't object to prettier, themeless games. For example, a little bit, little bit higher production value. Uh, say what you want about Fantasy Flight, and I say a lot of, I talk a lot of trash about Fantasy Flight. You can't deny that they know what they're doing in terms of art design. Uh, and I, I sometimes I wish that the, that that the games that I liked more would would be a little bit better produced. That's one of the reasons why I enjoy so many Simon designs, because typically they their approach to theme is a little bit closer to the way that I like to do things. When I look at a game like uh, Rum and Bones, for example, or I look at a game like um, even Dogs of War, very very well produced, lots and lots of art assets, but really it's about you know, trying to evoke a general sense rather than a specific set of of details that happen in a movie or a book. Yeah, but, reenacting movie scenes. You know, it's like, oh, what would happen if? You know, you threw in these like you know subtle modifiers to try to change up what would happen in the movies. Or yep. Or it's like, oh, I would do things differently. Some people enjoy that, but sure. You know, I think in the end, it's going to break down. Yeah, I saw. That reminds me, I saw a trailer for Star Wars Battlefront 2, which is a, a video game. And in this trailer, Yoda was having a lightsaber fight with Darth Vader, and I almost threw up in my mouth. Just not the point. <laughs> I just, I, yeah, clearly a lot of people want to see stuff like that. And to a certain extent, board games are trying to capture that idea. It's just not for me. That I, I just called to mind uh, you know, Yoda saying, wars don't make someone great. And, of course, the prequels are like, oh, yeah, so let, let's have him fight all the time if we can. And it's like, yeah, no, I don't get it. Anything else to say about theme there, Walker? That's all I've got, sir. So I guess at the end of the day, we agree. It's about evoking a certain kind of feel. It's about giving players the tools necessary to be able to have a compelling experience and for them to have some sort of agency in there rather than a slavish, devoted attachment to mounds of flavor text and reenacting specific things that may or may not have happened in a property. I couldn't have summed it up better. Well, then, thank you, Walker. I, I, I knew you kept me around for a reason, and it certainly isn't my personality. It's so, so true. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's going to close it out today for this episode of So Very Wrong About Games. Thanks very much for your time and for listening. Uh, please come find us on Facebook. We check all your comments and then promptly ignore them. Well, I ignore them. Walker takes them very seriously. And on that topic, you can reach Walker at justrolledadice at gmail.com. You can find me on Twitter at all the games you like. We also have our own Twitter account for So Very Wrong About Games called at So Wrong Games. We look forward to hearing from you, and until then, we'll see you next time. See you next time. You've been listening to So Very Wrong About Games, produced by Michael Walker and edited by Mark Bigney. Special thanks goes to What Does It Eat for generously allowing us to use their most excellent song, FOS, as our theme. You can find them at whatdoesiteat.com. You can reach us by email at soverywrongaboutgames at gmail.com or on Twitter at sowronggames. Thanks very much. See you next time. And always, try to be right, but remember you are so very wrong. <laughs>